Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're going to be starting a new study here, and we are with our study leader, Mark Horton. And as we'd like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Luke, would you please open us with a word of prayer, please? Holy Father, we thank you for this word and for the spirit that speaks to our heart and guides our lives. And we ask that you guide Mark in uh, guiding our Bible study, that the words may uh, speak to us, that they draw us closer to you and uh, transform our lives more like your son, Jesus. In his name that I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Good evening, Mark. Hi, Tom. It's good to be with you and uh, all of our participants again this evening we finished up a a look at the uh, short and final Hebrew book in the Bible uh, Malachi last time and we're going to start looking at the book of Acts this evening Uh, our friend Luke uh, brought out a couple of points in regard to our last look at Malachi that I wanted to address since he took the time to put these points down in writing Oh, excuse me, Mark, let me just interrupt. Before you start the series in Acts, go to our Malachi series because it really is a good precursor, actually, for this study here. It's only three lessons, so that's available on our podcast. All right, now Luke brought out the point that I had used the word heresy to describe modern dispensational views, and, and he thought that might be a little bit strong and uh, recalled that there were a large number of premillennialists in the early centuries of the church. They were known as Chiliists, and, and this is certainly true. They understood, they had a preterist view of a lot of scripture, but they missed the point that all had been fulfilled there in the first century, and they were expecting something else to, to occur imminently, which of course never did at that time. They were mistaken, but I would not call them necessarily heretics. There's a huge difference between classical premillennialism and modern dispensationalism. And that big difference is that premillennialists in the millennial kingdom that they were expecting viewed Christ to be ruling under the truth and grace found in the the new covenant. Dispensationalists believe that the millennial kingdom will revert to the law of Moses 
and this is tantamount to heresy in my mind when you just simply read Paul's writings and, and others. It's like the dog returning to the vomit, literally. So there, I just wanted to point out that there is a huge difference between classical premillennial views, which were certainly mainstream off and on through the centuries, and modern dispensationalism, which is uh, quite different. And we've tried to point out, as we examine different books in the Bible, or virtually every book that we've examined the Bible, that the fundamental idea that dispensationalists have about God making a mistake and not understanding what would happen or would not happen in the first century denies the sovereignty of God. And so those are the, just as a explanation, those are the two parts of dispensationalism that I view as heretical. And I certainly may be wrong on that, but we certainly can see the human toll of their belief system and a well-intentioned Christian can certainly be mistaken about all kinds of biblical ideas and doctrines. But when it goes to the point of racism and genocide, uh, I think it's probably gone a little bit too far. And and other Christians have cause to try to point out the the problems with their with their views. Another point that Luke brought out related to the use of the word uh, church and whether or not we should use that interchangeably with the kingdom. And there are certainly, the, the Greek word church is ekklesia, a called out assembly. And it has, it's used in different ways in the Greek scriptures. When I'm using the word, I'm usually either using it to refer to a local group of disciples in, in a community who are a local community of believers, a local family, a local church. Well, when I'm using it in the other sense, I'm not really limiting it to a certain period of time. I, in in my mind, this is the the kingdom of prophecy. This is the eternal purpose of God to create a bride for his son and a people for his own possession that we see running as a theme from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. And so if I'm talking about a group larger than a local church in my mind i'm thinking of this this bride of christ and this encompasses all believers all who are redeemed by the blood of christ from adam uh, all the way to the end of the future which is a long time away and i'm sure there's nuances of these definitions that uh, are worthy of further investigation study but this is a good lead-in to the book of Acts, which is really a continuation of the book of Luke. We had cause to look at the book of Luke um, sometime within the last few years. I don't know if we have recordings of any of those lessons or not. But we know that Luke and Acts were written by the same person or persons. And I wanted to just review a few critical points in Luke uh, as we go into Acts, since it has been some time since we uh, looked at this. We're going to be looking at one theme in the book of Acts of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And this is a very, very important point on which dispensationalists and others have widely divergent uh, viewpoints 
on what the restoration of the kingdom of Israel really means and what that was all about. When we go back to look at Luke, remember all these books are anonymous. They're not, the author is not announced. Everyone attributes Luke and Acts to Luke because later in the book of Acts, Luke changes from they to we at the point when Luke joins Paul's party. So it's kind of a dead giveaway. But scholars have noted for many years that many of the facts in the book of Luke and the book of Acts, Luke would have had absolutely no firsthand knowledge of. And Luke, I'll just ask this to our studio, uh, who or what prominent figure in the New Testament is Luke most closely associated with? You're thinking Paul. Good. Yes, Paul. Absolutely. And really, the book of Acts is almost the story of Paul. I mean, later on, Paul gets uh, a huge percentage of the total treatment. Both of these books are addressed to Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name, and uh, some scholars speculate that he might have been Paul's attorney during his first appeal to Caesar when he would have appeared before the equivalent of the Supreme Court of Rome in Rome. Now, we don't really know who Theophilus is, but it would make sense if Theophilus was a a Gentile believer who practiced law and who agreed to take up Paul's case and so on and so forth. He had been instructed verbally about the basics of the story, but these two books, Luke and Acts, are written uh, well, I'll just read the prologue to Luke. Uh, For as much as many have taken in hand to drop a narrative concerning these matters which have been fulfilled among us. Let's see, unfortunately, Luke is a another preterist book. Even as they delivered them to us, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having traced the course of all things accurately from the beginning, to write unto you in order most that you might know the certainty concerning of things which you were taught by word of mouth. So that's why the book of Luke was written. Now, these books do not, they are not written for a Judean audience, whereas John that we just recently looked at is definitely written for a Judean audience for someone who is extremely familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. Luke and Acts make an appeal directly to the sovereignty and power of God, whereas John is showing over and over the fulfillment of all of these Hebrew prophecies. Luke and Acts don't do that as much. They are showing something that the Romans would really appreciate, raw power. In uh, chapter 1, verse 31 The angel speaking to Mary says, Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So here we see, the beginning of this theme that's going to run through both of these books, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. He is going to 
have the throne of David. John never mentions David or the throne of David by contrast. And the house of Jacob, remember Jacob was the original name for Israel. It's the same person. And this reign will be forever and of the kingdom there shall be no end. So we know that once the kingdom is established in God's timeline, there are no last days of that kingdom. When we see the last days in the scripture, it is consistently always referring to the last days of physical Israel. Because when Israel is restored spiritually, which is what we saw at the end of the Gospel of John, the writer is showing us over and over again that it is not a physical kingdom that can be discerned with the senses. It is a spiritual kingdom. This spiritual kingdom will have no end, and this reign will be eternal. And again, the the premillennialists, the dispensationalists, don't believe that this has started yet. And so they can consistently at least speak of the last days as something that has to happen before the kingdom can be established. Um, Again, moving on here, chapter 2, when Jesus as an infant is dedicated in the temple courtyard. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it tells a whole lot more that he he would get to see the Lord's Christ, the anointed one, the king, uh, in other language. But in verse 34 It said, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign which is spoken against. Yea, and a sword shall pierce through your own soul and thoughts out of many hearts may be revealed. So the falling and rising of many in Israel, we see how consistent that is with what we saw in John, what we saw in Malachi. It was going to be a time of great judgment, but a time of rising or the restoration of Israel at the same time. But just as Paul writes of the physical body, it's sown corruptible, it rises incorruptible. Israel would be sown in the ground, buried by the Romans, corruptible. The new spiritual Israel would rise eternal and incorruptible, a spiritual body, not a physical nation. All right, we move forward to Luke chapter 3. John is preaching down in the, uh, and baptizing in the Jordan Valley. He said, therefore, to the multitudes that went out to be baptized, you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee of the wrath to come, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance And begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father, for I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Uh, Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bring forth good fruit is, is chopped down and thrown into the fire. So here's an illusion that there's going to be other children of Abraham brought in to replace those who are going to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. And remember, this is written to a Gentile audience, but we're going to see little hints of this 
over and over in chapter 4 when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth and goes into the synagogue and he reads from the book of Isaiah and tells them that this prophecy has been fulfilled that day in their ears. Beginning in verse 24, he said, He said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. But of a truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three and a half years, and when there came a great famine over the land. And unto none of them was Elijah sent, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman that was a widow. So this is a woman who is a widow and a Phoenician, a Gentile, lower than the low. And Elijah was sent to her. And he continues on. Now, he's, he's speaking to a Judean audience in the synagogue when he says this. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. <laughs> and they were all filled with, with wrath in the synagogue as they heard these things. And they rose up and threw him out of the city and led him up to the brow of the hill where the city was built that they might throw him down. Uh, headlong so even you see these hints all through Luke that the Gentiles are going to receive the blessing the blessing is going to be removed from Judea from the remnant of physical Israel here he heals on the Sabbath in chapter 7 he enters into Capernaum and there was a Roman officer a centurion there whose servant was very dear to him and was sick to the point of death. So Jesus starts heading that way to heal them. But when he was not far from the house, skipping down to verse 6, the centurion sent friends to him, telling him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. You should come under my roof. And I am also not worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man set under authority, having under myself soldiers, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turned and said to the multitude, I tell you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole. So here's another little hint of blessings. You know, here's a Gentile who has greater faith than uh, physical Israel. Let's just, uh, well, we have the transfiguration here, which shows his uh, glorification. Again, we're, we're having an appeal to, the, to his absolute power, his raw power, and to uh, blessings that are in the wings here, imminent for the Gentiles. In Luke 21, we have uh, an extremely strong denunciation of Judea and Jerusalem. He's saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, beginning in verse 20, then know her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of her depart out, and let not them who are in the country enter therein. For these are days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who are nursing in those days, for there shall be great distress on the land and wrath to this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led captive unto the nations. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until 
the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled or the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, which is a direct quote from Jacob's blessing back in Genesis 49 about uh, the Messiah, about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. So Judea is on the way out and the Gentiles are on the way in. I'm going to bounce over here to Matthew 24 because it's the parallel chapter talking about this. But Matthew 24, verse 14, uh, particularly uh, serves as a good introduction to the book of Acts because he's talking about all of this same tribulation that we just read about in uh, Luke 21. But in uh, Matthew 24, 14, he says, And this good news of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, which is the Gentiles, and then shall the end come. And so this is exactly what the book of Acts is. It's a record of this good news of the kingdom being preached uh, throughout the world uh, before the end of national Israel. Now we get to, uh, we're almost done with this. <laughs> we get to Luke 24, and this is the resurrection. But later on that Sunday morning, uh, two disciples were on their way to a village named Emmaus, a ways out of Jerusalem, and they were rehearsing all of the events that had gone on over the last few days. And Jesus uh, drew near to them. And they were prevented from recognizing him. And he's asked them, hey, what are you all talking about? And uh, the one, Cleopas uh, answers, are you, are you the only one who's traveled near Jerusalem and aren't aware of what's gone on here the last few days? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course. They asked, what things? And uh, they said, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in a word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And here's verse 21. We hoped that it was he who should redeem Israel. So the redemption of Israel here is on their mind. This was their hope. Anyway, um, he lets them go on and on about this. But then skipping down to uh, verse 25, he says to them, O foolish and slow of heart to believe in all, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not appropriate for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself of course the scriptures that he's referring to here are the hebrew scriptures because that's all the scriptures that there were at this time so if luke is accurate if it's a an inspired book it is saying that all of the prophets uh, spoke of the events that were going on right then and there and that there were huge amounts of things in the hebrew scriptures that concern Jesus, and he explained it to them. And verse 31 tells us, their eyes were opened and they knew him, and presumably they understood 
his explanation. Now, they turned around and went back to Jerusalem, and they're starting to try to explain all of this to Peter and the others who are there. And in verse 36, it says, As they spoke these things, he himself, the Lord Christ, stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you, because they thought you know, he was a, probably a ghost or something like that. So he convinces them that he's really there, that his body has been resurrected and so on. But now beginning in verse 44, he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must need to be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And this is important here, verse 45. Then he opened their mind that they might understand the scriptures. So they were confused. You know, they, they were still looking for an earthly kingdom, an earthly restoration of Israel. They didn't understand that the Messiah would suffer. It's easy for us looking back with hindsight to look in Isaiah and the Psalms and see these things that predicted the suffering of the Messiah, but no Judean scholar before this time had really been able to put all of that together. Now they are able to put that together because he opened their mind so that they could understand the scriptures that it was. Now, And this is a really important point when you examine dispensationalism because, you know, Darby wrote that article about how the cross was a complete failure for God's plan to set up the kingdom and the cross was a horrible defeat for God uh, and and he bemoaned the fact that Christians talked about the cross being a victory but right here uh, maybe Luke uh, is not inspired and Darby is I don't know but I don't think both of them can be but here he's teaching them it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission from sin should be preached in his name unto all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So in this account, God knew and premeditated and planned that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. In the dispensational view, God could not foresee this. Things got completely out of his control. The kingdom was supposed to be set up, but it didn't work out according to plan. And so the church was kind of thrown out there as a temporary holding peace, and, and the kingdom was deferred for thousands of years into the future. I, I personally cannot reconcile that with these verses that we've looked at here in the book of Luke. And he tells them there to stay in the city until you are clothed on power from on high. And then it closes here with his ascension. And they stayed in the temple, blessing God. Now we can finally flip over to Acts. Mark, may I make an observation? Yes. What you've just uh, given to us, we hear about all the time from dispensational side, the, the radical Zionist side, described as replacement theology. The idea that the new covenant replaces the old covenant 
which I think you, you even used the word replacement, and that is referred to all the time in the evangelical churches in their, in, in, in their debates as uh, replacement theology. And they, they say that, of course, in negative tones. And, and replacement theology in all the scholarly journals now is equated with anti-Semitism. Okay. I just Good quote, observation also. Yeah, I just quoted uh, Cross, Frank Cross, one of the leading Bible scholars in the world. And he was just, I can't remember, if he, I think he was referring to John Strudnell, uh, the editor of the Dead Sea Scrolls, who admitted that he believed in replacement theology. He, he uh, in an interview, he, he described rabbinic Judaism as, a, as just a terrible religion. <laughs> and he, had, he said he had a lot of friends who were rabbis, a lot of friends that he worked with who were Jews, Orthodox Jews and so on, but he just, he couldn't find any redeeming quality to their religion, which was his opinion, you know, and I'm sure he discussed it with them. But because he was that candid in the interview, he was branded as an anti-Semite and was fired from his life's work of seeing all the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, translated and published. So when Frank Cross was uh, being interviewed about something, he, he was, uh, oh, it was about the Biblical Archaeology Review, he mentioned this about how that he knew John Strudnell and he knew that he was an anti-Semite who believed in replacement theology. So he, he used them as uh, synonyms. So, yes, this is replacement theology, and perhaps we're even, I mean, perhaps the dispensationalists view me as a heretic because... I do, of course. Uh, <laughs> Because they grew, they they view <laughs> replacement theology as rank heresy, right, and and as anti-Semitism, and uh, anti-Semitism, which you know is not hard to achieve uh, that label uh, in these so days. What is a, what is a better term for us to use that would contradict this uh, that, that we could apply <laughs> more properly? Traditional Christianity. How's traditional Christianity sound, or is that too broad? Well, it's pretty broad uh, it, when you consider the Chileism that uh, Luke brought out or you consider the Arianism that flourished for many centuries that denied the divinity of Christ. I mean, there were a lot of different traditions uh, under the blanket of Christianity. But the Gospel of Paul is, which is what I'm trying to, <laughs> what we're trying to demonstrate here is that Luke and Acts, if Paul didn't write it, he... He was the commanding influence behind Luke when Luke wrote it. And Saul was a, or Paul had been Saul, and he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a student of Gamaliel. He was one of the leading up-and-coming young men uh, amongst the Pharisees. And his theology is replacement theology. I just read from him here as we went, skimmed through these excerpts in Luke. Yeah, okay. I'm just looking for a better word for us to use because it it throws up uh it throws up all these images in the minds of people when you use the the term that's been branded replacement theology. This is this is really uh, the gospel of Paul <laughs> or the well uh, how about what uh, maybe this is too covenant? broad but the new covenant 
the new covenant. I mean, the dispensationalists interpret that differently, I guess. Well, again, that's what I was saying earlier, the difference between the early premillennialists, the classical premillennialists and the dispensationalists is the dispensationalist has no appreciation for the new covenant. It's just a temporary thing until we can go back to the old law. I mean, yes, eventually it'll kind of phase out into something different, but they are jumping through hoops to try to bring about the restoration of the old covenant in all of its gory detail. And I literally mean gory detail, whereas all other premillennialists understood that it was something that has, you know, passed away and is not part of God's future plans for his kingdom or, or anything else. So, uh, how about how about the then and now new covenant? You had it right the first time, Tom. The gospel and the new covenant, pretty good. Yeah, it, that's I said the then and now new covenant. The good news of the kingdom. I mean, that's how we just read it in uh, in Luke, and that's what we're going to see in Acts. The restoration of Israel was the good news, and it was preached, and and it was sweeping away the old, the old to die and of the new and of his reign there shall be no end it will go on forever and ever so I mean the the, the scholarly term is supersessionism mm. <laughs> supersessionism no thanks the new, I'll, I'll stick with <laughs> the good news of the kingdom a bible truth and so I you know I don't know why we would rename it uh, at all because it's the it's fundamental principle uh, of the gospel Okay, thanks for that. I think that's important that we have that that little distinction ready on our tongues because it, it, when we say any any of the things that you've just taught us uh, to a really uh, radically informed and dedicated Christian Zionist such as a pastor, uh, they are immediately going to pop up, shrug their shoulders and say, well, I really can't deal with you. Uh, you are a practitioner of replacement theology. And then they sniff and walk away. And um, you need to have an answer for that. And no, I'm a follower of the good news of the kingdom is a pretty good one. Yeah, I don't know the answer. I mean, I can't imagine anybody except a dispensationalist or a scholar afraid of losing his tenure, uh, even knowing what replacement theology is or getting upset about it. But uh, there are, of course, a significant number in both of those groups. There are, indeed. Thank you. All right. Well, let's um, let's go ahead and look at the first five verses in Acts, please. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right, thank you. So, we notice on the very first day that he's with them, the first day of his resurrection, he, according to the book of Luke, he sets them straight on the nature of the kingdom, and he opens up their minds to all of these things out of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled and things of the kingdom. And here, as kind of a summary to get the office back in this, the spirit of things for part two, he mentions that he is appearing to them and then speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God for this 40 days. So as the book of Acts starts off, we see that the kingdom is the important concept that Jesus is making sure the apostles have straight. Now, let's uh, go ahead and read verses 6 to 11. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, thank you. Now, Verse 6 is a, is a really critical because they're asking him, are you at, at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And most scholars, most commentators have remarked that, oh, the, the apostles are still confused. They don't understand about the kingdom. And so, and they're still confused. Now, friend Don Preston in Ardmore, Oklahoma, has pointed out that it just doesn't make sense at all that these men were confused after 40 days of intense one-on, you know, not one-on-one, but one-on-12 study with Jesus concerning the kingdom of God. Do, do you see the important point that Don is making here? Remember what we read back in Matthew 24:14. He said, "The good news of this kingdom shall be preached into the whole world for a testimony unto all the nations, and then shall the end come." But you see, this is a critical point. They, in Luke, we were told that they had their eyes opened on all these things in the Scripture. Right here in the first sentences of Acts, we have it stated that he is showing them the things that concern the kingdom of God. So, can we not think that 
the teaching was good enough and that the opening of their minds that Luke described was sufficient enough for them to understand the nature of the kingdom after this intense period of study concerning it. Maybe they had a new and different crowd following. Well, this is, but remember, this is primarily the 12. I'm sure there was still an inner core of disciples with them, but it's not, it's not a new crowd. It's everyone is hunkered down. Their leader has been uh, arrested, executed, and now raised from the dead. They haven't gone out and recruited replacements so they could all retire uh, during this time. They've all been hunkered down probably in the same upper room there in Jerusalem. And so he has explained to them what the kingdom of God is. Now, we may not understand it still, and we certainly, the Christians of 2012, certainly have multiple understandings of the kingdom. But in my mind, it is unlikely that the disciples who were there together in Acts 1 were confused about the kingdom because he had been teaching them the things concerning the kingdom for 40 days. That's a very, very important point. They understood the nature of the kingdom. And so their question, are you at this time restoring the kingdom to Israel? It's not a question about the nature of the kingdom. It is strictly a question about the timing of the kingdom. And note his response. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has appointed by his authority. You see, the answer points to the fact that their question is regarding the timing of the restoration of the kingdom, not the nature of the kingdom. So, yeah, that's a very important point. They understood that it was a spiritual kingdom. Uh, by this time, which, again, we saw that in the Gospel of John. That was a, you know, a, a r- real theme all through, uh, particularly the latter part of the book, uh, that it was a sp- the spiritual nature of God's new family, the spiritual nature of the kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, and so on and so forth. So the apostles, we can clearly... Right. Yes. But it sounds like the words here, my version uh, translation, restore the kingdom to Israel. So that kind of sounds like a physical restore, meaning bring it back the way it was. Well, it does. And I mean, it does sound that. Remember earlier, we read out of Luke about him taking the throne of David. And that sounds like a physical chair, doesn't it? Yes. And that's what the dispensationists believe. They believe that the chair that David sat in is going to be miraculously reconstituted from the dust of the ages so that Jesus can sit in the literal chair that David literally sat in. And the kingdom that's going to be restored is the literal kingdom that David ruled. And now Jesus is going to rule that literal kingdom. It does sound that way. Mm But again, we see clearly the teaching that the kingdom was not of this world, that it was a spiritual kingdom. Jesus had 40 days to teach the apostles that it was a spiritual kingdom. And now they're going 
to ask him when he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. But they understood that it was a spiritual kingdom. Remember Simeon in the temple courtyard. This one will be for the rise and fall of many in Israel. So part of Israel was going to fall and part of Israel is going to rise or be restored. A rough synonym uh, there. So this is a major theme that runs throughout the prophets. Uh, This was the theme of the book of Hosea, which we looked at some time ago. Israel was going to be sowed as seed amongst the Gentiles. But in the last days, they would be gathered back together as Israel. They would be restored as Israel. So the restoration of Israel is a major, major theme of the prophets and is hinted at all through the book of Luke, as as I was trying to point out in my introductory remarks. When Jesus is thrown out of the synagogue in Nazareth and they try to throw him off the cliff, it was because he hinted that the blessings of God were sometimes going to the Gentiles and not to physical Israel. And this, you know, provoked a strong reaction then, just as it provokes a strong reaction today, like we were talking about with replacement theology. So, anyway, it's a critical point. They understood the spiritual nature of the kingdom, but, you know, they said, is this the time to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he he tells them that they're not going to know these times. Remember Matthew 24, you will preach the good news of the kingdom throughout all the, the world, and then the end will come. So, It wasn't at this time that it was going to happen. They had to get the word out to the whole world before this could happen. And we could go up many places. We could go back to Moses. We could go to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel, chapter 12, uh, and many other places. But just wanted to kind of set the stage this evening that one of the major themes of the book of Acts is the restoration of of the kingdom of Israel. But it's it's a spiritual restoration and it's it's the inauguration of a spiritual kingdom and of the reign of Christ on the throne of David and of that reign there shall be no end. It will be an eternal reign and and it, it is not an age that will have any last days. It's an it's it's an ageless uh, kingdom that's going to be established in those days. So again, if and, and I don't know Luke's exact view of the church, but certainly the kingdom is a more expansive view because it, it is the family of God that have all been redeemed by the blood of Christ from Adam, you know, all the way to the end of the future. So it's a it's a an incredibly large number, and it's not a group of people living on the earth at any one time. It transcends time. And all that. So it's it's a marvelous thing, and that's what hopefully we're going to be looking at uh, here in the book of Acts in the weeks to come. So I, I did a lot of talking this evening, but anyway, are there other comments here before we close for tonight? Very, very instructive and worth listening, going back and listening to the tape, and thanks, Mark. I hope we have a lot of listeners. Thank you, Mark. And spend the time to listen to this. Great. That was a powerful introduction, and we'll look forward to continuing on next week in our study here in Acts. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.